0: Hi, everyone, it's Ken. Before we start, I want to share some exciting news. We've paired with Midas Touch, so you can now watch these interviews on YouTube. Just search for the Midas Touch YouTube channel or click the link in the show description. Thanks and enjoy the episode.
1: Anti-fascism is not just an idea, it's a way of life. These neo-Nazis are dedicated to spreading propaganda, to recruiting, to radicalizing people every day, to pushing the Overton window uh, so that the Republican Party starts to use their hateful rhetoric against minorities, against the LGBTQ plus community. We have to be just as dedicated.
0: I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Chris Goldsmith, an Iraq combat vet who studies disinformation and far-right movements. He's the founder of Task Force Butler, an organization of veterans who aim to disrupt online extremist activity and radicalization and encourage those who have fallen victim to its disinformation to leave that path of destruction. Chris, uh, it's probably been a year plus since we've had you on. Welcome back to Burn the Boats.
1: Thanks man it's great to be here.
0: When we last talked the idea of of civil war being taken seriously, I don't know that it was even part of our conversation, but it's part of every conversation now almost everywhere. I look people are on our side I guess raising the the warning flag on the other side they're like salivating over the prospect. To what do you attribute this change in tone to? Well,
1: just a few days ago, or it might have been yesterday, as we're recording this, Senator Lindsey Graham basically, you know, said that MAGA is going to go out and riot if Trump is ever held to account for any of the laws that he may have broken. And you know, while there's a, a bunch of discussion about, oh, you know, is is Graham making a threat? You know, is he irresponsible for talking this way? But frankly, he's He's accurate in what he's saying. MAGA maniacs will riot if and when the former president is, is held to account for uh, whether you know it has to deal with stealing documents that belong to the, the United States government, regardless of their classification or anything else that he's ever done. The use of the term civil war evokes the idea of two sides going out with guns and, and shooting each other. It won't be that organized should there be some sort of mass violence. There is not going to be, you know, some split in the military where we've got a north-south type of of situation. But what we will see is stochastic terrorism. We will see people like Trump or, you know, other fascist uh, light politicians like Ron DeSantis or J.D. Vance who use their platforms to stir up their base, um, to inspire terrorist attacks, like the attempted FBI shooter from a few weeks ago. He was responding to this stolen election lie, and we're likely to see more of that before things start to cool down.
0: I think that's a really illuminating phrase, stochastic terrorism. In my prep for this, I, I looked it up, and it describes exactly what's going on. You have these politicians you referred to who create this this environment, this condition, this permission structure for others to go out and perpetrate those acts of violence. We've had other guests talk about cell-style terrorism and the danger of lone wolves, but there is some real culpability at the top driving this, this narrative and this this mood of resentment and anger uh, that is infecting these groups that are actually pulling the triggers, right? Yeah, and
1: you know this is not a, a new concept. It's not new to the MAGA movement. You know, the, the MAGA bomber that people you know seem to have forgotten about was was years ago. You know, trying to, to mail pipe bombs to CNN. You know, January sixth was not a spontaneous event. It wasn't just led by the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, the Proud Boys on the ground. It wasn't just led by the Steve Bannons in the war room and the General Flynn's who were more or less providing the intelligence structure for, for this insurgency. This type of violence is fueled by, like you said, this permission structure where they're labeling their their opposition as enemies, as enemies of freedom, people who are trying to take things away from you. That animates people to vote, yes, but there's a, a line of responsibility between saying, you know, they're coming after your health care versus they're coming after your freedom. They are socialists, they, you know, being the Democrats, Joe Biden, AOC, whoever else is a target, saying that they're going to try and like, you know, ruin your life in all sorts of fantastical ways, that is where things start to get dangerous.
0: It is telling that Joe Biden and Democratic leaders are encouraging Democrats and freedom-loving actual patriots to go out and vote, while Lindsey Graham and others are inciting their followers to riot. I mean, I don't think there has been a clear distinction between two major political parties and their, their belief in the, the fundamental value of democracy.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that it's it's something that we should note anytime that someone like Lindsey Graham comes up that, that he served in uniform for decades. This is a man who who understands strategy, understands the concepts of insurgencies. And he understands what it takes to inspire violence. He—he's not a stupid man. He was a lawyer. He is a lawyer. For him to be going out and saying that there will be riots without condemning that this will happen, without saying but there shouldn't be because this is America and we solve our problems by voting, by talking to one another, by trying to change each other's minds, not trying to kill each other. You know that—that is. part of a disturbing trend that we've seen in these former high-ranking officials who, you know, will stand on their former military rank to create this permission structure for civilians to use violence.
0: Let's drill down into into that for a minute because one of your main focus areas is on the radicalization of veterans. Obviously, Lindsey Graham knows better. You you mentioned JD Vance Uh, former Marine who knows better. But you have also described the broader population of veterans in in this country as economically efficient targets. Can you explain Mm -hmm. why there is such a focus by these disinformation purveyors on veterans? And I'll add another footnote to this, that shooter, the FBI shooter in Cincinnati, who you brought up earlier on, was himself a Navy vet. Unlike Graham or J.D. Vance, probably a true believer, not, not I mean, you don't become a, a trigger puller cynically. He actually thought he was following his commander's orders. Yeah.
1: So the reason why I got into what I'm doing, which is essentially hunting Nazis online, Right, and and that's why I created my business, Barbarius, and why I'm launching this nonprofit task force, Butler Institute, to train other veterans to identify and intervene when they see disinformation and growing extremism. Now, why are veterans targeted by extremists, by those who spread disinformation? Like you said, we're economically efficient targets. What does that mean? Um, if you can change the mind of a veteran. If I am trying to get a veteran to buy a product, let's say a Ford F-150, the electric one, the, the Lightning, if I convince a veteran to buy that pickup truck, they are more likely than if I were to invest that time in changing someone else's mind, they're more likely to get their friends and their families on board with the same thing, to turn an idea into a movement. Whether it's the Russians that I used to study years ago targeting service members and vets with disinformation campaigns, or the Republicans who have always been good about trying to recruit veterans to uh, to vote their way, uh, or the far right. Uh, they are going after veterans for the same reason that Fortune 500 companies do. And those things are all different, right? But. Fortune 500 companies go for veterans because we're when we go to school we're more likely to graduate than our peers, we're more likely to receive higher GPAs, we're more likely to start small businesses, we're more likely to be community leaders and that could be anything from running for office to being a football coach. So when any propagandist source of disinformation wants to invest in a target, it makes economic sense for them to target veterans because they're more likely to bring others. These veterans that they're targeting are more likely to bring others along for the ride.
0: I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about Task Force Butler. I've known you for a while, so I have your backstory. But um, for your lead-in, can you Uh, Can you give us a a refresher on Chris Goldsmith, how you got to where you are and what you're doing now with this incredible initiative to engage veterans in, in fighting back?
1: Sure. So Task Force Butler Institute and this idea of using open source intelligence techniques to discover and disrupt disinformation and extremism is actually built on years of my research at a veterans organization. I used to work for Vietnam Veterans of America It's one of the congressionally chartered uh, veteran service organizations, one of the most impactful and important in the country. It's part of what they call the big six up there with the American Legion, veterans of foreign wars, disabled American veterans, et cetera. While I was at Vietnam Veterans America, I was at an organization by and for people in their 70s. So naturally, being the millennial in the office, even though my job was policy and government affairs, I was also helping their communication staff manage their social media pages. And one day, I noticed that there was an imposter Facebook account using our, our logo, our name, photos of our CEO of Vietnam Veterans America. and and I also noticed that they had a quarter of a million followers in what was essentially a brand new Facebook page. Compare that to our 10-year-old at the time Facebook page that had something like seventy-five, eighty thousand 80,000 followers, right? So when I first saw this, I'm thinking, oh, man, we got to reach out to this member and we got to offer them a job because they're doing a great job promoting our organization. Long story short, I, in studying this page, came to realize it was actually a foreign intelligence operation. And it wasn't just a Facebook page. It was an entire digital ecosystem, multiple websites, Instagram, Twitter, etc. And it was connected back to, we think, the Internet Research Agency of Russia. Now, two years later, after that first discovery, on behalf of Vietnam Veterans America, I published a nearly 200-page report about the 10 different ways that foreign Entities target troops, veterans, and our families with everything from, you know, those Russian-type disinformation campaigns to things like identity theft and the targeting of Gold Star families. But the one common thread that came through almost all of those chapters to, to build audiences, to build engagement was the injection of like racist and xenophobic narratives into veteran spaces by these foreign groups. And this could be, you know, the Russian intelligence research agency, or it could be literally like those Nigerian scammers, right? Targeting individuals for romance scams. And over time, you know, I published that in 2019. Since then, All of the time, the years that I spent looking outwards at the threats to the United States and to our community, um, those threats no longer seem nearly as relevant compared to the domestic threats. Leading up to January 6th, I was working for a private firm collecting intelligence infiltrating hate groups and unlawful militias and writing reports, basically intelligence reports for a private company. I don't know where they went, I signed an NDA. So I can't really talk any about, the, about any of the details, but I can say that my intelligence reports didn't make it to the right people ahead of January 6th. And on that day, on January 6th, my Workstation here kind of looks like a like a space station. I've got screens from here to here, right? I watched the insurrection from the perspective of the insurrectionists. Seven different screens, seven different live feeds all around the Capitol, in the building. I know the building. I've worked in D.C., you know, on and off for years. That's when I decided I, I need to go my own way, launch my own company. It's called Sparvarius, And I had every intent of just you know, being a consultant and working in security, making sure that my reports make it to the right people to try and save lives and preserve democracy. But every time I I talk about what I do, I've had veterans reaching out to me on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on Twitter saying, hey, how can I get involved? And it took me a couple of years, but I finally came up with the idea of Task Force Butler Institute, which would train veterans not just to perform OSINT, open source intelligence investigations, but to work as part of a team using a centralized database, which would essentially become a um, an extremism database where we are able to track the act real world activities and online activities of everyone from like a General Flynn-type figure who's massively influential in the in QAnon movement, to individual veteran veterans who've you know raided the Capitol as part of the insurrection.
0: You're mostly, it sounds like, focused on veterans. I would love to get your sense though of what kind of problems we face in terms of radicalization and extremist ideology within the active duty military because a lot of the talk of of civil war i think confuses the two and it's it's an important distinction yeah so
1: one of the one of the problems with studying extremism in the military is there are a lot of powerful forces out there be it the Pentagon or politicians who don't want to play along in making those studies effective right When a member of Congress asks the Pentagon, and they genuinely want to know, you know, how many extremists have you kicked out of the military in the last five years? Is the rate increasing? The Pentagon, none of the branches have a good answer. And that's because they hadn't been tracking that metric. They hadn't been tracking a metric of, we gave this person an Article 15 because they're a white supremacist. We kicked them out. We court-martialed them because they're a white supremacist, right? That is just simply not a box that is being checked and massive data set that the military has on everyone who serves has served. And every time advocates like myself and academics try to get the military to study this, Republican politicians primarily step in and say, oh, you know, this is all protected by the First Amendment. We don't want this, you know, we, we don't want thought police uh investigating our military, et cetera, et cetera. And you get caught in in this vicious cycle of we can't study the problem because the Republicans won't let us. And then they say, well, there's not actually a problem, so we can't justify the studies, right? So we are still stuck in that in that cycle. And and the latest development on this is The Senate Armed Services Committee, every Republican plus the independent senator, um, uh, Angus King, who I have a lot of respect for and and who has been right on issues like this, essentially said that any money that DOD spends on preventing extremism or researching extremism is wasted uh, and it is offensive to troops. And that is profoundly disappointing. They, they wrote this down in, in this year's Senate uh, Armed Services NDAA report. You know, I, I hope before the end of the year, we can convince them that that is unhelpful at best, but it's not looking good. I don't think that this year's NDAA will mandate that the Pentagon get to the bottom of researching the problem of extremism as it pertains to active duty troops.
0: How do you think about and address the the First Amendment concern because hate speech is still uh, in most contexts protected speech. How do you deal with the fact that you know we are one of the few modern democracies that holds that protection sacrosanct?
1: Yeah. So the first amendment protects people from the government coming in and saying, you can't say that, or we're going to punish you for saying this. And everybody knows the the limits, right? You can't scream fire in a crowded movie theater because those, those words can inspire panic and hurt people, right? So there are realistic uh, restrictions on that. People can be held responsible for damages that they cause for that um, for screaming fire in a theater, right? There's nothing about the First Amendment that uh, stops a private entity like Task Force Butler or me from holding people accountable for the rhetoric that they use online, for the you know for the speech that they use online, and I think that's a good thing. You know, we don't necessarily want the FBI to be, you know, controlling everything that's said on the internet to be, you know, spying on everyone, right? That you can get dystopian with this kind of government watching everything like a panopticon situation, right? We don't want that. But there's no reason that if an extremist, if a neo-Nazi is trying to use hateful rhetoric to create fear in a minority population that someone like myself or a member of Task Force Butler can't highlight, well, this extremist works for, you know, X company, or they are planning to protest a gay bar. Uh, And, you know, we know this person to have brought weapons to previous protests, right? So there's, there's nothing to stop me as a private individual, as an American, using my First Amendment right to educate other people, to educate other Americans about the threats, about the people who are making the threats, so that our communities can protect themselves in ways that maybe we don't want law enforcement to be involved.
0: I sometimes found myself in my days running a a large veterans organization, reminding staff and volunteers that while I might not have a constitutional right to tell them what they could and couldn't say, they didn't have a constitutional right to a job at the organization. I think that's what you're getting at, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. And a neo-Nazi has, and this is becoming a thing in Florida, right? People swastika bearing neo-Nazis standing out and protesting every single weekend now. They have a right to do that. But me and my organization also have a right to Identify that masked individual and let their communities know that the person, you know, uh, in their community is a neo-Nazi and that those neo-Nazi beliefs are potentially life-threatening to their community. It goes down to a specific example. So I infiltrated the uh, the neo-Nazi group Patriot Front, and I've been doing it a, over and over for a couple of years. But in 2020, I infiltrated them, found out where uh, Thomas Rousseau. Um, the founder and leader of this organization found out where he lived. Well, after he got arrested, things like his address, you know, his biographical details were all became public information, right? So I took that public information and when an article came out explaining how Patriot Front is a fascist racist organization who uh, advocates for a white ethno state, you know, through genocide, right? I took that, made it into an information packet, a community, and engaged in a community notification campaign. I drew out a circle on a map and got 200 addresses for everyone who lived within a quarter mile of Thomas Rousseau, then in Grapevine, Texas, now in Haslett, Texas. And I spent my own money, hundreds of dollars, to print out hundreds of copies of, of these reports, stuff these envelopes, buy the stamps, and mail it to his whole community. The reason that I did that is because I know there are minorities who live in that community. And if I had a kid who lived down the block from a neo-Nazi, I would want them to know that if they see the red Camaro with, you know, the goofy kid with the cowboy hat driving down the street, that they should get out of the street. Because this neo-Nazi might just one day, you know, choose to kill a kid of color.
0: just two friends having lighthearted conversation about history pop culture and the context of current events listen to history teachers talking podcast from evergreen network anywhere you get your podcast coming up on five minute news i'm anthony davis my sense, and I've, I've gotten to know you over the, uh, the past year and change is that you don't do anything halfway. Uh, and I'm, and I'm wondering, and I, and I feel like I do know you well enough to ask this if the look is intentional. And for those who are just listening to the podcast, uh, Chris is like a character out of, uh, out of sons of anarchy. Does that help you get in?
1: Yes. Um, so I, Someone who looks like me, and I i have a bald head and a pretty long beard, people will say things to me if I go to a bar that they wouldn't say to other white people. Like I, with the, the tattoos and stuff, like I look like I could be one of those MAGA heads, right? I look like I could be in a militia. You know, Right? right now I'm wearing a collared shirt, but if I take off my shirt, people make assumptions, right? When I go to D.C. and I put on a suit and tie, you know, you see the the bald head and the big beard. Everyone thinks I'm an undercover cop, including cops. So I recognize, you know, I've got a different kind of white privilege. I look like I could be law enforcement or I could be an undercover cop or I could be a neo-Nazi. And I use that as part of my work to gather intelligence in the field.
0: You've been doing this for a long time, you also have an appreciation of, of history. And I'm wondering if if you think that the Nazism that is, is so obvious today, the white supremacy that that we're being inundated by is on the rise or is it just bubbling to the surface and it's always been there but has permission to expose itself now?
1: It is absolutely on the rise. So, Again, I mentioned Patriot Front before. This is a neo-Nazi group that is primarily Gen Z in some millennials. What makes them different from a lot of other uh, neo-Nazi skinhead white supremacist organizations is they have an age range from 18 to 35. They are specifically targeting young folks so that they can not just have an easier time, I think, pushing propaganda on them because these are folks who... You know, don't have as much life experience, and who might be angry and more likely to be economically insecure, and therefore uh, easier to manipulate. But when they're pushing these white supremacist ideas, they're not just you know using racial slurs. It's not like the the racism that people might have seen on on the schoolyard when they were kids, like the casual racism. They are reading. Stuff written by Mussolini and Hitler and a whole host of other actual fascists, actual neo Nazis. They think of themselves as adopting a real philosophy. They inundate themselves with uh, video propaganda that rewrites the history of Hitler and makes him look as like a great white savior, right? Uh, and as the United States is having been been manipulated you know, by some shadowy globalist cabal, right? So between the online culture uh, and our online technologies, the apps that we use to communicate and and things like the pandemic, white supremacist, neo-Nazi and extremist organizations have had a recruiting bonanza in a way that just wasn't possible a decade or two ago. You know, if the KKK Two decades ago, in order to recruit someone, had to you know post flyers in their neighborhood or you know hand out flyers at a, a pro life event or something like that. Nowadays, you know, a group like Patriot Front or uh, the New Columbia Movement, these white supremacist organizations can get on TikTok or Twitter or Facebook, and their propaganda can be seen by millions of people all over the country, all over the world. And, you know, the pandemic gave a lot of folks a lot more time online to self-radicalize and to end up in these recruiting pipelines.
0: I want to pivot to what we do about it. Obviously, there are private efforts underway like Task Force Butler, but at the policy level, is there is there a solution? So... Um, you know, it's
1: hard for me as a former advocate. I used to work on things like the GI Bill and healthcare. And every time there's a problem as an advocate, it was my job to literally like go to congressional staff and be like, here's the problem. Here's the evidence of this problem. Here's the solution. I don't have a policy solution for this stuff. What I do have is the idea of imposing costs, social and economic costs on fascists as a way of life. You know, anti-fascism is not just an idea, it's it's a way of life. These neo-Nazis are dedicated to spreading propaganda, to recruiting, to radicalizing people every day, to pushing the Overton window uh, so that the Republican Party starts to use their hateful rhetoric, you know, against minorities, against the LGBTQ plus community. We have to be anti-fascists, have to be just as dedicated. So, you know, there's one of the most important lessons I think that I ever learned in community college, you know, after coming home from the military, it was in economics 101 about negative externalities. The negative externality is say there's a coal plant next door, they're pumping out coal unregulated, that smoke comes into my house every day, everything's black. Now my whole life is just covered in soot, you know, I could get cancer from it. Well, government solves these problems by taxing and regulating that coal plant not just to you know prevent danger from happening to me, the neighbor in the future, but to compensate me. So they tax them so that I am better off than I had been after being damaged by my neighbor, right? So these neo-Nazis have been able to operate virtually unopposed for years, recruiting, radicalizing, targeting minority populations to instill fear. What we have to do is take that negative externality and turn it back on them. If they want us, if they want minority communities to be scared, we have to figure out a way to expose them, expose these individual neo-Nazis and impose social and economic costs. So sometimes that's the justice system. If there's evidence of a hate crime, you know, we can give that to investigators to State, uh, local, or federal law enforcement. Maybe they'll um, the criminal justice system will take care of them. More often than not, hate crimes aren't prosecuted. So it's up to us to notify you know uh, their employer, their their wife, their girlfriend, their families. Let them know that they've got a neo-Nazi in their life, so that they can keep themselves and their community safe. I mean, bottom line is most employers around the country are not willing to employ a known neo-Nazi. So if we can identify someone who's trying to instill fear on in minority communities to their employer, that's an economic cost. That is a tax on neo-Nazism. So that's what Task Force Butler is basically founded on, the idea of imposing these prices.
0: I think that's great. And I, I applaud the work that you're doing. But I have to imagine that one of the the challenges of imagining a policy solution is that one of our major political parties is developing this weird symbiosis with the far right. I mean, the leader of that political party told the Proud Boys to stand by in the event that he, he lost an election. Correct me if I'm wrong, but is it the Proud Boys that are designated a, an extremist organization by Canada?
1: yeah there canada has recognized the proud boys as a terrorist organization and that is that is not a label that comes lightly you know i think it's also notable that the proud boys were started by a canadian gavin McGuinness. he's also the founder of vice uh, vice news but he has not been associated with them for years right but gavin McGuinness was born in the UK. He's a Canadian citizen. He's been living in the US on a green card. He has made the claim that he recently got his American citizenship. I've seen no proof. As we're recording this, just last week, Gavin McGinnis was doing a show and it was apparently interrupted by what sounded like, they were off camera, sounded like law enforcement. And he hasn't posted in a few days. So, you know, if his home country if he still is a Canadian citizen, has designated the organization that he started as a terrorist organization. I wonder if the feds would be willing to hand him over to face justice.
0: I want to finish with a little more on Task Force Butler because the historical reference is not only fascinating, um, it's opened my eyes. Obviously, well, not obviously, but General Butler is a legendary... Marine, but you talk about on your website, his involvement in the, uh, the the bonus marcher scandal. And I had always read about that as an event that drew a bunch of hungry, desperate veterans clamoring for justice. But there's a backstory there to these tens of thousands of veterans gathered on the national mall. They were being towards the end provoked and instigated by industrialists who wanted to overthrow the government. Do I have that right? That's correct.
1: Yeah. So there's, there's a book that I keep my on my desk, uh, gangsters of capitalism by Jonathan M. Katz. That is a book about Smedley Butler. Um, Major General Smedley Butler was a man of a lot of contradictions. He was referred to as the fighting Quaker. Uh, The man was an incredibly effective Marine of of the um, World War I era. Now, when he came home from um, and retired into civilian life, the man was one of the most well-known Marines ever. He was incredibly well respected, kind of like a General Mattis is for our generation. And he was approached by a, a group of wealthy industrialists who tried to recruit him into a coup against the United States. And he basically went along with the plot to gather information, started working with the journalists. So the journalist was there to, to vet the information that, uh, that he was getting, to vet the story. And they called it the, you know, the the Wall Street coup. They intended to have Smedley Butler lead the Bonus Army, who were literally camping out on the National Mall to storm the United States Congress, to storm the White House, and to take over the United States government.
0: And the Bonus Army, for context, they they were demanding things, and and for the most part, that were rightfully theirs, but they were also being manipulated. Uh, by people who were not on the front lines, I, and I'm I'm characterizing it that way because in some ways the parallels to January sixth are are striking.
1: Yes, yeah. So the the Bonus Army were the Doughboys, right? The World War One vets had been promised while they were overseas that they would get a bonus for every day that they were overseas fighting the war in a combat zone. When they came home, we were on the gold standard. The Treasury only had so much money; they couldn't print it. Couldn't just print more money, right? And that was one of these the biggest tensions right now at this point with these industrialists getting off the gold standard, paying, printing money, you know, going into debt, that kind of thing, right? So there was a lot going on behind the scenes. Now, the bonus army went down and went to DC because the Great Depression happened and they were destitute, their families were destitute. And the parallel to what happened in 2020 and 2021 with, with Trump's insurrection you know, is, is similar in that those folks who went down to storm the Capitol on January, 20, uh, on January 6, 2021, they thought that they were entitled to something. They truly believed that the election had been stolen, that their democracy was at risk. Now, you know, that doesn't make them not responsible. They should be held legally responsible, spend some time in prison, uh, especially the ones who actually committed violence that day. But the manipulation of not just Americans, but American veterans on and around, you know, the time leading up to January 6th goes to show how much of economically efficient targets we were. There have been several hundred people who've been charged. We've seen veterans were at the core of the planning and execution of the violence that day, and we've seen that those veterans, their presence, their experience, helped them to lead the mob on that day. So this is, you know, a, a multi generational thing that we've seen people trying to manipulate veterans into destroying our own democracy.
0: Well, Chris, this has been an extraordinary conversation. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us. Where can people go to learn more about Task Force Butler?
1: Taskforcebutler.org. You can read a little bit more about the history of of General Smedley Butler. You can sign up. And if people want to support us by donating, you know, we absolutely appreciate every dollar that you can send us because we're using it to train veterans to engage in this type of investigation and to hold fascists accountable for for what they're trying to do to destroy our
0: democracy from within. Well, keep it up, Chris. It's been great having you on.
1: Thanks a lot, brother.
0: Thanks again to Chris for joining me. You can learn more about his organization at taskforcebutler.org. You can also find him on Twitter and Instagram at chrisgoldsmith85. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars and Sean Ruhl-Hoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions.
1: Thanks so much for checking it out. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.